I have recently fallen in love with paddleboarding, and I can blame all of that on my Bluefin stand-up paddleboard that I just got from Bluefin Sup. And the reason I love it is because you can stand up, look down in the water, see all the fish, see all the stuff swimming around, um, see the bottom, see... It's just absolutely amazing. It, it, It adds such an amazing dimension to being on the water. And and another thing I love about it is it has an included kayak seat. So it's almost totally replaced my kayak. Um, And you can attach it, detach it. It's amazing. So if I want to sit down for a little while, I've got a seat ready to go. The paddleboard is totally inflatable. I can pack it into a backpack that comes with it, carry it around to where I want to go, and then take it out, inflate it. It only takes like five to seven minutes to inflate and comes with a five-year warranty for anything that goes wrong. It's a community-minded, family-run business based in the UK, um, but available worldwide. When I placed my order, it was here within a matter of, I don't know, four or five days. Um, And I was very happy with the price, very reasonably priced, especially for the quality you're getting. And they have such an array of boards. I decided to go with the Bluefin Cruise 12, just like a general uh, everyday use board. But they've got racing boards. They've got fishing boards. They've got boards for, you know, complete amateurs all the way up to experienced ocean tours. It's amazing. So if you are in need of a paddleboard or want to get into it, I definitely recommend Bluefin Sup. And I just want to thank them for supporting the show. And they are having $150 off a Black Friday sale at BluefinSupBoards.com. That's bluefinsupboards.com. A big send-off party, starting with a, a pedal-powered hovercraft. So you pedaled it like a bicycle, and it and it hovered. It was the only one in the world that had been invented by some mad professor. At our, yeah, it was great fun. Stopped a lot of traffic and caused a lot of chaos, but that was our big send-off. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm usually your host, Mason Gravely, but today is a Throwback Thursday episode. We're going back to 2015 to talk to Tim Moss. Tim is a an amazing adventurer, maybe legendary, I don't know, maybe that's too far, but I, I've been following him for a while. I, I didn't actually realize we had done an episode with Tim so far back, um, but we're, we're going to be talking about a number of his adventures, but the one with the title uh, that you saw in the title is Around the World in 80 Ways, and no, that is not a typo. Um, it is not supposed to say 80 days. It is literally traveling around the world in 80 different ways, so talk about trying new things. Uh, But before we jump in, I did want to give a shout out to our most recent patron that's supporting us financially over at patreon.com. Thanks, mom, for becoming a patron. (laughs) Yeah, I got a notification uh, that we got a new patron and I looked at the name and it's my mom. So thank you, mom, for the support. It's very kind of you. I gave her a call right away. I'm like, what are you doing? You're not, you don't have to do that. And she's like, well, I just want to support you in what you're doing. So uh, can't can't thank you enough, Mom. You've you've done a lot already. Uh, you raised me for one. That was a that was a big one. Um, but it, but if you're interested in becoming a patron, definitely check out the show notes. You can see we get ad free episodes uh, now. So if you're you're interested in that, definitely go check it out. But without further ado, let's go ahead and get into Tim's story, hosted by Kurt Linville back in 2015. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. We have a fantastic guest for you today. Tim Moss grew up in the United Kingdom where he still lives today. He's a British adventurer who has a passion for trying new things and also for encouraging other people to try new things as well. Twelve years ago, he started his adventures by doing a mountaineering trip to Kyrgyzstan. And since then, he cycled around the world He traveled around the world in 80 ways, not days, ways, which will be a lot of fun to talk about. He's been on several mountaineering expeditions. He holds a Guinness Book World Record for the longest distance traveled on a rickshaw. And to help encourage others to try adventure, he took on a project where for 100 pounds, he wanted to see how far he could go on an adventure. And so, Tim, welcome to the program. Nice to be here, Kurt. Thank you for the kind introduction. 
Tim, I've been going over your website, thenextchallenge.org, and it is so cool, all the different things that you've been able to do, the experiences you've had, but also the ways that you're reaching out to encourage other people to do adventures as well. That is exactly the theme of the Adventure Sports Podcast, so we are running in parallel with that effort. Great, yep. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Yep, yeah, the whole point of it is to try and get other people out there doing adventurous things. Well, hey, I just kind of hit a couple of bullet points about you, but will you take a few minutes to tell our listeners more about yourself and your connection to your adventure sports? Absolutely, yeah, I'd be glad to. So, uh, as you mentioned, it was about 12 years ago I did my first expedition when I went to Kyrgyzstan, and that was a real jump into the unknown for me. Uh, I'd never really done anything like it at all before. I'd been camping with family and friends in the UK, and then when I was at uh, at university or college, as you guys call it, I saw a poster and it just said grants available for expeditions. And that just that just lit a bulb in my mind. I just thought I'll, I'll apply. I'll come up with something. So I teamed up with my friend Tom. We we put our finger on the map and found Kyrgyzstan and I filled out the application form. And we, we didn't have much uh, high hopes for it. But lo and behold, the interview came around and they they gave us some money. Um, and we we flew off into the unknown like i said it was a real real uh, jump in the deep end and to be honest everything went went horribly wrong we didn't climb any mountains we kept falling in crevasses our food <laughs> ran out our, our stove stopped working and i when i came home and told my friends and family about this you know they'd shake their heads and you know just think i was an idiot but the, the truth was it was it was just brilliant uh, it didn't matter that we didn't get to the top all those uh, close calls and and scrapes with with danger were just were just all part of the excitement. And since then, my trips have been much more successful and a lot less dangerous. But it really opened my eyes and opened my mind to the possibilities of the different things that are out there. Oh, that's neat. So yeah, and and since then, I've just been trying to do, uh, but perhaps on average, about one expedition or adventure a year. I did um, a couple of a couple more mountaineering expeditions like that one. Um, which were, like I said, more successful. We got to the top and um, less falling down. We went, travelled around the world in 80 ways. It was again with my friend Tom at the end of our university time at college. And the idea with that was to use 80 different methods of transport to get us around the world and try to use each one only once. So although we were pretty flexible with our rules, like we'd take a steam train and an electric train, a biplane and a regular airliner, it did make something's quite hard um, and I suppose that was the challenge of it um, the added joy with that one is that we were started raising money for charity we realized that we've been starting to take other people's money to fund their expeditions and it was now was a good time to start giving back and uh, and since then I, I for, for a while I organized expeditions for a charity school trips to the Arctic and the Himalaya and the Amazon jungle and then I decided that I wanted to try and do it full time. So I went freelance, started writing about my adventures and supporting other people. So occasionally people would pay me to organize the logistics for their expeditions. Um, and now I've decided that um, that I don't, you know, you don't need to do this full time. You don't need to be a professional adventurer to have adventures. Anybody can do them. Everyone gets holiday allowances. Everyone gets a, a weekend. So I just have a regular job like everybody else. I go on my expeditions and my holiday, and I update my website in my free time. Well, you have a fantastic website with lots of great information and information about your trips as well as how other people can get involved in adventures, so it's a lot of fun. Let's start out by unpacking that around the world in 80 ways a little bit. I didn't know that there are 80 modes of travel out there, but um, share with us some of your adventures associated with that trip. Yeah, I mean, like you said, if we didn't know there were 80 methods either, we, we came up with the, the idea and, the, and the, the catchy headline. Then we had to sit down at the drawing board and work out if we could think of 80 different methods. And in fact, it was um, before the, the, the term was popular, we, we, we crowdsourced our ideas. So we came up with about 80 ourselves and then opened it out to the public. And before we set off, we had about 300 ideas listed down. The Because we were university college students, the the first problem was organizational skills we uh, <laughs> we had a great website we had we had coordinated t-shirts we'd booked a train across uh, across russia on the trans-siberian but we hadn't actually worked out how 
to leave London. So we had a, a big send-off party starting with a, a pedal-powered hovercraft. So you pedaled it like a bicycle and it, and it hovered. It was the only one in the world that had been invented by some mad professor at our, at our university. Wow. Yeah, it was great fun. Um, stopped a lot of traffic and caused a lot of chaos, but that was our big send-off. And then after that, we, we, we didn't really have a plan. So we walked around the corner to get away from the crowds. And then we just started hitchhiking. We figured our second method of transport would be sticking our thumbs out and see if someone would pick us up. Uh, <laughs> Pedal-powered hovercraft. That sounds exhausting. Uh, yeah. yeah. So we, um, we initially thought our rule was going to be that we had to do each method of transport for a mile but we uh we, we quickly ruled it out because some of the things like that it's, it's tiring work and other times you just you'd see a camel at the side of the road when we were in mongolia or someone would come past on a, on a rickshaw and we just had to take those opportunities so we weren't too too strict with our rules it was for fun and for charity so any opportunity we we got um we would take it <laughs> well list a few more modes of travel that you tried oh i had a, a good range you know we were we um we were we got a lift on a fire engine. Uh, almost got a lift in an ambulance in a <laughs> in a minor emergency, but oh, no. uh, it turned out we didn't we didn't need the ride. Um, th- this was we we were in in Berlin, and Tom's method of transport was using monkey bars. You know, like uh, like in the gym, they lower a playground. You, you swing across and grab onto them, and <laughs> doing some distance on those, uh, which was all fun and games. We we're having a good laugh until he fell off and winded himself and couldn't get his breath and a minute or two went by and he still wasn't breathing so we had a we had a real panic I, w- I was laughing I just thought he was messing around and then he got his phone out started typing in the number for 911 uh, so we called the emergency services and they came running through the uh, the, through the, the playground it was Germany and they're sh- shouting uh de Kinder or something like that which means you know where's the kid where's the child we had to explain that there was a there was no child, there's no kid involved. It was just my friend being stupid on the on the monkey bars, and he was he was fine in the end. And we were tempted to ask for a ride in the ambulance, but we we, we figured we'd we'd already uh, caught enough trouble as it was. <laughs> well, on your website, I see the list of eighty ways, and uh, this is a lot of fun: conference bike, free running, taxi, uh, forward rolls. <laughs> so you did some results yeah we, we we decided we weren't too strict but we figured we didn't just want to sit in one spot and do acrobatics so what we would do is every time we found uh, a big landmark like the the eiffel tower or um the i think it's the reichstag building in berlin we would we'd set up our video camera and we'd do we'd do some kind of acrobatics past that landmark as, as part of the to sort of showing the showing off the world that we traveled around <laughs> That's a lot of fun. So I see uh, climbing, camel, horse, uh, trains, tuk-tuk. What is a tuk-tuk? So tuk-tuk, they come by different names in different parts of the world, but it's like a motorized rickshaw or a, or a motorbike with three wheels and a seat on the back. They're really popular in Southeast Asia. Okay, and yes. Also, you mentioned the, the conference bike there. That was one of our favorites. I, I, I don't know where how common it is, but it's a it's a huge bicycle which has seven seats all in a big circle, and everybody can pedal. And the idea is one person has a steering wheel, and the rest of you all can all sit around and have a conference, have a meeting, have a chat whilst you're pedaling up the road. <laughs> That's fantastic. Here in Denver, Colorado. There's something similar where about 10 people sit at a bar that you pedal down the road and drink beer. Oh, yeah. I, d- <laughs> I don't know if they were around at the time, but I, have, I, I once saw one of those go past me in London. Yeah, it looked like a lot of fun. Uh, it's, a, it's a crazy idea. Right. Well, fantastic. How many miles did you actually do on your trip around the world here? You know what? I'm, I'm not too sure. I, we, we didn't, because there were all the different methods, we didn't really, didn't necessarily keep track. I know that the the Trans-Siberian Railway alone, you know, we only had one proper train to use, so we figured we'd make it a big one, and we, we went from Moscow all the way to Beijing, and that must be uh, three, four, five thousand miles in itself. Wow. Tell us a rough idea of the, the route that you took, what your itinerary was. Yeah, so we started in London, went to the, uh, the south coast and got some kind of ferry across to France. It may have been a normal ferry, we all, but we also used the a hydrofoil and a hovercraft at some point we we sort of hitchhiked our way in in trucks and things like that as far as paris we used 
one bus again because we didn't want to use them more than once we made sure that they went long distances and we got a bus from somewhere in eastern europe all the way up to moscow we've got that train across from moscow to beijing we stopped off in mongolia which is where we got a ride on uh, that camel and spent a day uh, horse riding through a national park we are flight what we we're good we spent a while in china there were some pretty weird methods of transport there we and our flight i think we ended up using from hong kong to uh san francisco and a big problem by this point was that we had to get back to the uk we need, we need to go around the world but we'd already used our plane to get across the pacific and to get home atlantic we still there's a huge body of water there um and we were a bit stuck on how to do it uh when we we got an email out of the blue when we were in the philippines saying that there was a boat leaving from montreal and it was going back to Europe, a space set aside for us. And all of that was perfect. The only catch was that it was leaving Montreal four days after we landed in San Francisco. Oh, no. And <laughs> Yeah. And we, we, we couldn't get a coach. We'd already done that. Uh, I don't know if there are trains that would have helped us, but we'd already used trains. And we certainly couldn't fly because we'd just arrived there on a plane. So we were, we were in a bit of a fix. And then we realized that... Uh, we, we figured we'd, we'd try what you guys do best, and that was a, a road trip. So we only had 96 hours from landing at San Francisco to find ourselves a car, uh, drive it 3,500 miles to Montreal, and uh, get on the boat. So it was a real whistle-stop tour of the United States, all uh, gas stations and motels, but we, we did it. We had 1,200 miles in the first 24 hours, taking it in shifts and sleeping in laybys. Um, and eventually made it to Montreal. And all we had was this email saying, go to the docks, go to whatever it is, dock seven, part nine. And we just turned up. We we jumped in a taxi when we got there. And there there was this huge, huge container sheet. It must be hundreds of yards long and a tiny like wooden gangplank going up to the side of the ship. So we just walked up and load of guys came out in boiler suits with hard hats and they just said you must be tim and tom come on in and that was about <laughs> as much explanation as we got the next day we started sailing out towards the atlantic and we were there were only four passengers on board including us and the rest of it was just containers <laughs> what a fun trip tim what is your major takeaway from this trip i mean you did it for charity you did it for fun it's a very unique idea but what did you learn about yourself, about the world, about the people that you encountered along the way? Well, what was good about that trip is that um, whereas all my previous expeditions had been physically hard work, we'd be we'd be camping out, we'd be carrying heavy rucksacks, rucksacks up mountains, we'd be getting up in the middle of the night when it's dark and it's really cold and it's just tough going. This one had its challenges, but there was no, there weren't really any physical aspects to it. And what I like about that is that some people really enjoy the physical hardship. They like tough sport. They love hard climbs. They love conquering the elements. Some people think that sounds horrible and sounds like a terrible idea to use your holiday time. So the good thing about this one was, was showing that you, there are different ways to have adventures and they don't all have to be uh, blood, sweat and tears. Some of them can be a bit more fun. So that was a real good takeaway from that trip. Well, how long did it take you to get around the planet in all these various modes of travel? Well, as, as well as the uh, difficulty of finding all these different methods and using each one once, and the fact that we were on a bit of a budget, the other constraining factor is that I had to get back in time for my brother's wedding. So <laughs> we only had about uh, seven weeks or something like that. So it seems crazy now, but we had a, had a real strict time limit. So we were constantly rushing against the clock. Um, but we, we we made it, and I got back just in time to smarten up and be an usher, a groomsman for my for my big brother to get married. Oh, that's fun! Wow, what a what a trip in seven weeks! Really cool. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, you have a lot of other adventures here, and I want to uh, highlight a couple for the listeners. Uh, crossing the Wahhabi Desert, and it sounds like you did most of that by moonlight. And you have yep. a section here about your 
uh, Kyrgyzstan trip. There's a trip from Tim's to Tom's, so I assume this is the same Tom that you traveled around the world with. Yeah, the very same. We, um, uh, we've known each other since, uh, since college, university days. We've done a few trips together, like to Kyrgyzstan and around the world. And we, we both started jobs, working, working full time, nine to five. And we were beginning to think that we had no time left for adventure. Uh, and then we were probably commiserating over a beer. And we just thought, you know what, this is, this is, this is stupid. You don't need, you don't need weeks and months of time to have adventure. So um, I had come up with an idea and I, I sent him a text message one day and asked what his, his postcode, his zip code was down on the Isle of Wight. So he grew up on a little island off the south coast of England. And so I wanted to get his address and I came up with the idea that we would travel from my house in London down to the south coast and over to his house on the island by triathlon. So we started from London and cycled about 60 miles down to the south coast. And then came the tough bit. It was a three mile sea swim out to the island and finishing with a half marathon to, to the house in which he grew up. A half marathon to the house. Yeah, it was about the run and the cycle were half Ironman or Ironman 70.2. And the swim, the swim was bigger than a, with an Ironman. And that was the real, that was the real kicker because we, we, we both got excited about the idea. We're planning it, telling all our friends. And then it dawned on us that neither of us could even swim a single length of front crawl. So it was a real uh, uphill struggle. Wow. So uh, you had to learn to do distance swimming just to make the attempt. Yeah, exactly. We, um, I really, I mean, I knew how to front crawl in the sense I could, I could swing my arms around and splash and make a lot of noise, but, um, I could do one length and then I'd be fighting, gasping for breath. So yeah, it was a real slow process. We both, uh, got gym memberships and just went and swam as much as we could until we, uh, got reasonable techniques. I would, but I was okay. Um, and then you got the added challenge of swimming in the sea. So it's obviously, you have choppy waters and uh, salt water, which is doesn't taste good and gets in your eyes. And then both of us are as skinny as anything. So trying to keep warm, we even with a wetsuit on, I really struggled in the in the uh, in the um, seawater. Wow, isn't that the the joy of adventure sports? Though we have an idea, something we'd like to see, try or do, and then there are all the logistics, the things we have to learn, the challenges we have to overcome to actually go out and do the sport. You know, the adventure becomes the motivation for self-improvement and for having experiences that we just wouldn't have otherwise. Absolutely, yeah. And if, you know, if, if sat down and spent ages poring over the distances and the, the logistics of it and how, testing ourselves how fit we were in the swimming pool, we, we probably wouldn't have given it another thought. We'd just think, you know, this is, this is too much. But you get a little bit excited, you get a bit carried away, you come up with a goal, and, and then you just set about working towards it. Well, it sounds to me like you uh, definitely became a good swimmer. One of your adventures here was swimming the Thames. So swimming the length yes. of the River Thames is a part of a Greater London Triathlon. How, how far was that? So the Thames itself, I think it's just over 100 miles. And I should, I should tell you now, I, I hope I've disclosed it on my website, we, we never finished that. It's my, my wife and I doing, doing that. And you, you said I was quite a good swimmer. And maybe, you know, the fact that I swam three miles at sea, I appreciate that sounds like a big, big number. But my wife is is way better swimmer than me. She's done 10 miles at sea. And the difference between her and me, apart from technique and speed, is that she doesn't get cold like I do. So mm. we would, that, that Thames swim we were trying, we, that was, again, an attempt to do adventures around full-time jobs. So we didn't take time off or holidays or anything like that. Just whenever it was a weekend, we'd jump in the car, we'd drive out to the start of the Thames, put our wetsuits on and see how far we could swim. And the problem was um, we would do a few miles every time, but Laura, my wife, she'd be fine. But after an hour or so in the water, I'd just be turning blue and getting cold and have to get out. So we did that. Maybe we did that about 10 times. Maybe we got about a third of the way down the river um, and then we, we, we called it quits, I think, to finish it. If we did it again, I reckon I'd let Laura do it, and I'd be the support boat. <laughs> there you go. Well, it's so fun to try these things and to have these experiences, but I, I'm getting the theme here that you're trying to do things that pe- people can work around a 9-to-5 uh, a job. You're trying to do things that will encourage others to get out and try things. 
but you also have some that are a little bit bigger. How about walking across Patagonia? Oh yeah, so that was a that was a that was a good trip. Um, it was sort of a second honeymoon for my wife and I. We didn't have much time after we got married, but we 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 stored up a holiday allowance. And just when you get married, your boss tends to be quite nice to you. So we we got a, a month off work, and we decided um, to try and walk the width of South America. Now, obviously, uh, we did the narrow bit down the bottom. We had a month. Um, but like so many of our adventures, it just starts with Google Maps, looking at the world, thinking, what can I, you know, where can I cross? Where can I get to? And we thought walking coast to coast, crossing a country or two countries as it is down there would be a good challenge. The difficulty was the Patagonian ice cap, which hugs the west coast of Patagonia. And, you, you know, it's in theory, it's possible to cross it, but it's it's tough going, uh, quite dangerous, potentially and requires taking a lot of mountaineering kit. So the difficulty for us was finding somewhere on the west coast without crossing that glacier. And we found a, a tiny little in, inlet between the north and the south half of that glacier. And so we spent probably three, four days traveling from the UK to this tiny remote spot by planes and coaches and minibuses and a lot of hitchhiking standing at the side of the road just so that we could swim in what we counted as the Pacific Ocean before we started walking east to the other side. <laughs> Fantastic. Really, really fun. So why would you encourage people to take up their own adventure sports? I suppose there are a few reasons. I mean, w one of the reasons, things that I like is that it's um, everyday life in the 21st century is pretty pretty easy pretty safe pretty straightforward you there's no point you, you, you're not very cold and if you are you'll soon be in a heated building you're never far from food you never have to work too hard because you've got a car you've got a taxi you've got a train and that's good you know humans the world has evolved technology has improved to make our lives easier but sometimes it's good to give yourself an excuse to remind yourself of a few more fundamentals and some more elemental parts of life so going out there and getting your heart rate up, getting a little bit scared sometimes, making yourself work hard, building up a bit of a sweat, having to work for your food in the evening. Those sorts of things I think are really good for the soul, very life affirming. So I think that's a big part of it. Hmm. That's a that's a really good answer. You know, often people say, "Well, my sport's a lot of fun." And what you're talking about here is is uh, expanding your life by having experiences that will take us out of the climate control right absolutely yeah and just putting yourself in these new situations and having these new experiences i think it really broadens your mind and introduces you to new ideas and new ways of thinking so for example we just my wife and i just spent uh, a year and a half cycling around the world and one of the greatest things that came out of that was the kindness of strangers it's a it's a cliche and i'm sure people say it all the time but cliches tend to be true we we um, found that almost every night we would uh, knock on somebody's door or ask a shop owner if we could pitch our tent we'd find a field and point and say you know can we can we camp here and so many times people would just say nope no chance you can't camp there you've got to come inside my house i'm cooking you dinner you can sit down with my family and you can sleep in our spare room and that happened in country after country all over the world and it's just just remarkable the sort of the kindness of strangers to to you know we turned up these grubby cyclists looking looking like well, i don't know what we looked like but it wasn't good probably not smelling great either and they didn't bat an eyelid before inviting us into their homes oh that's nice you know we recently interviewed willie weir who has done sixty thousand miles in various places all around the globe on his bicycle and he said yep. that the bicycle itself seemed to be part of the magic formula. It was what kind of opened the doors because people said, there's a traveler that's doing something unique, not just a bum, <laughs> right? And it yeah, seemed that the yeah, bicycle yeah. was a, a great conversation starter. Absolutely. And it just it's just, I don't think it takes a lot for somebody to be nice, to, to show their kindness, but having something like a bicycle that shows um, shows that you've, I guess it gives you a little bit of vulnerability. Uh, it shows you must have worked to get there. And, you know, you're not going to be a, a criminal because a bicycle would be a terrible getaway vehicle. And it just shows that you're, you know, a no normal person like them, even if you're from a different country. 
um, then it's just that little bit of a uh, bit of a connection that helps pe- people get started. Well, Willie certainly believed in the bicycle. He he started out by saying that he really wasn't an avid biker. He was a traveler, but he just found that biking was the best way for him to travel. Yeah, and that's one of the beauties of cycle touring, I think, and it's one of the reasons I would always advocate that as a good place to start because you don't have to be a cyclist. You don't have to have – you need to know how to ride a bike, and that's about it. You don't need – money because it's a very cheap way to travel you don't need fitness because that builds up as you go along you just need a bike and a sleeping bag and you can just head off and see where you get to tim tell us about a time that things didn't go right adventure is about taking some element of risk right and when things don't go right sometimes that's when we we come up with the best stories or the best experiences um what comes to mind for you (laughs) well what immediately comes to mind is uh my first proper cycle tour i was up in norway i had just been uh, working as a guide on a climbing expedition in the uh, arctic norway with a lot of uh, young people and when they all got on the plane to go home i stayed in norway because i'd packed with me a bicycle and my plan was to cycle back home instead of taking the plane and it was it was a great trip. It was really good. I was all, all on my own, didn't have a map because I was disorganized. I just pedaled down this lonely road through Norway and towards Finland and Sweden and had a, had a great time. But the, the catch was that one morning I woke up and didn't feel right. I felt really sick and temperature and what I call jangly skin, all the sort of flu-like symptoms, which would be fine if you woke up at home you just feel a bit sorry for yourself and get a day off work but i was in the middle of nowhere out in the woods in norway on my bicycle so i had to um had to load up my bike pack my tent away and pedal very very slowly feeling very very sorry for myself to the nearest town and i got to the town and it was fine you know i checked into a hostel had had the day off and then when I went to leave the hostel, I realized that my shoes weren't there anymore and no one was around. I don't know if someone had, stolen, someone had taken them by mistake or moved them somewhere, but I had to get going. And it meant that I cycled the remaining 800 miles through the Arctic and back home wearing my sandals. <laughs> and uh, to, to add to this, the sickness and my stolen shoes, my camping stove suddenly stopped working. Oh, no. And, and again... A bit like with Kyrgyzstan, it, when I retell that story, it sounds like a series of disasters, but they, none of them mattered. Uh, I cycled in my sandals. If it was cold, I put my socks on. And instead of having pasta in the evening, I just had bread and cheese. It was no problem. And it just, again, just these these little challenges that you get thrown up with, you don't get in everyday life. You, you just get on with things when you're out there, when you're on an expedition and when you're on your own. And the rest of the trip was great. Biking 800 miles in sandals, what was that like? Did it tear your feet up or were they okay? Yeah, absolutely fine. In fact, I now cycle with sandals quite a lot and I probably wouldn't have done if someone hadn't stolen my shoes. <laughs> so the new, the new mode of biking, that's fun. Well, yeah. tell us a minute about the 100-pound adventure. I know you did this to show people that adventure was accessible, but what did you do there? Yeah, so it was it was a time when I was a bit low on money, to be honest. Um, I was trying to make a living out of doing adventures. And as I'm sure any other adventurer would tell you, it's not a well-paid profession. And feeling a bit sorry for myself and thought I couldn't go on an expedition. And then I caught myself thinking that I'm, I'm writing these blog posts, writing these articles, telling people they don't need money and sitting here myself saying I haven't got enough money for an expedition. So I thought something had to be done. And as it happened, it was around about Christmas time and my uh, lovely parents, they gave me about uh, £100 for Christmas, $150 about that is. And I decided rather than using that to do anything boring, like pay the bills or buy food for the month, I would blow it all on an adventure. And so I set out with £100 in my pocket and a rucksack on my back and went out in search of adventure. I set myself a a list of different things to do, like leave the country, sleep under the stars, swim in the sea, uh, um, and those sorts of things, like a sort of hit list of targets to achieve. And I just walked out my front door and started hitchhiking my way around the country. Uh, And it was a great success. I, well, I say success. The first 
was pretty much sat at the side of the road holding up a sign trying to hitch with people laughing at me and ignoring me and me thinking this is a terrible idea <laughs> but eventually it just takes that one person to stop that one car to pull over and everything before it's forgotten uh, i made my way over to wales out to the coast where i swam in the sea i hitched up to the north coast got a flew almost a third of my budget on a ferry over to to ireland and another big chunk of the budget on a obligatory pint of guinness in dublin and eventually made my way back home and the best thing about it is that i came back with 35 pounds change and you have amazing stories and memories to show for it absolutely yeah you know that's wonderful it's so fun when you simplify things sometimes and just go right it's just a matter of going out the front door and continuing on yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was kind of, kind of the point is that I didn't I didn't have a plan. I just set some goals. So I had something to aim for. But I, I really didn't plan anything at all other than filling a backpack and putting £100 in my pocket. Well, listeners, you can read about all these various adventures on thenextchallenge.org, which is Tim's website. And believe me, I'm going to dive deep into reading through all these, Tim. They're really inspirational. Thank you very much. But in addition to that, Tim has written a series of books. He has, it appears, seven ebooks as well as a paperback that go a little bit deeper into adventures. The ebooks are How to Row an Ocean, How to Cross a Desert, How to Get to the North Pole, How to Get to the South Pole, How to Sail Around the World, How to Cycle Around the World, How to Climb an Unclimbed Mountain. Really, really neat stuff there, Tim. What was your inspiration for these? I suppose my inspiration was just that um, after so many years working in expeditions uh going on expeditions and helping other people go on them i realized that um there were just lots of things that i knew which i thought uh, other people could benefit from it can be really really daunting if you decide for whatever reason you want to ski to the north pole or you want to climb uh, an unclimbed mountain it's really hard to know where to start it can take ages researching there's lots of jargon and different opinions and sometimes people help you and sometimes they don't and I just thought that over the years I'd accumulated a lot of knowledge and I thought I'd be able to write it in a way that was accessible so whether you're actually planning a trip or you're just curious and want to know how where you go to the toilet when you're rowing an ocean or um, how you sleep in the in Antarctica uh, I've just tried to break down all the basic stuff and tell somebody with no experience or no uh, starting point um, how to get started on doing one of those trips. Very cool stuff. And then your paperback, The Iconic Adventures Guide. Tell us about that one. So that is the that is a compilation of all of those short ebooks all into one paperback with sort of an extra. Uh, introduction chapter all about expeditions and a foreword by Sir Ranulph Fine. So that's what I published first a few years back. So if uh, someone wants to have the paper copy that they can throw in their backpack and go without an electronic device, then they can get um, all of these under one cover. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I'll even sign it for you. <laughs> I love it. Um, how can people contact you if they want to get these books? Then how do they do that? Oh, it's um, it, very easy. If you want the the best thing to do is if you want the ebooks, just they're just to stay on for sale on my website, so you can get them there. And if you you could pay with a, whatever a credit card or PayPal, and they'll get sent straight to you. If you want the paperback, then to be honest, if you're in the US, then the easiest thing to do will just be to go and get them from Amazon. Okay, very cool. What about tips or tricks for people that want to try some of these adventures? Maybe select one, since you've done so many, um, and, and give us some ideas that would be really helpful about that sport. Okay, well, I'll, I'll start, if I may, with just general advice about adventures and expeditions, um, because I get, as you can tell, I'm not a, not a specialist. I don't just do one thing. I do lots of different bits and pieces, and I get emails all the time from people asking me for help. And the number one thing that people email about is sponsorship. They've got an idea or they want to do an expedition and they want to find out how to get the money. Now, I've got plenty of advice and resources and tips and things like that on my website if you're trying to get sponsored. But generally speaking, my advice would always be just don't bother because it sometimes it happens. You know, one in 100 people, they'll get lucky and it'll happen. But much better, I think, to find something that you can afford. Save up your pay 
pennies, do something a bit cheaper or whatever it is, sell your bike, sell your car, sell anything you've got lying around and do it that way. And the reason I say that is not being defeatist or to put people off, but the opposite, because rather than spending weeks, months and years sending out emails, pleading for people to give you money and all the heartbreak and hard work that goes into that, much better to just take life into your own hands plan something that doesn't rely on other people it doesn't require somebody to open their checkbook or, or give you their money you just do something that you can organize yourself and there are plenty of things that don't cost a lot of money almost all of my expeditions have been done for uh, less than a thousand pounds fifteen hundred dollars i've got all the details of how much everyone cost on my website um but you can do a lot of stuff for a little bit of money so whether it's a hundred pound adventure or even cycling around the world that was a year and a half for ten thousand dollars and we're by no means the cheapest so when you're looking at um only about say five hundred dollars six hundred dollars a month for doing that and then just you can save money on your kit rather than getting sponsored go go on ebay go on amazon go second hand just save your pennies save your time and save the heartbreak so your advice is to just do it get out there and do something whatever you can afford go afford it do it Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not to get people to rein their dreams in because some things you will need sponsors. You can't do Everest and Antarctica with the money uh, in your, that's you know hidden down the back of your couch, your settee. They're expensive things, but there are so many expeditions that don't cost a lot of money. And I would include pretty much all of my expeditions in that. So you can do a lot without having to spend all that time and heartache trying to get sponsored. Oh, yeah. You know, it's been several years back now, but a friend and I decided that we would go to Kenya. And I saved my pennies for my regular job, but I also, it was, uh, it was July, I guess, before we were going to go to Kenya in August, and I ran a fireworks stand for Independence Day here in the U.S. and earned enough money between my savings and just running a fireworks stand for a few weeks that we were able to go to Kenya for five weeks. And it does not have to be that expensive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it really, really doesn't. And I think it's just getting that point across. And I think it's easy for people to see adventurers like me with websites going on podcasts, talking about it and think that we, you know, we're somehow professionals where people pay us to go on these expeditions or something like that. And it's, you know, there are people like that. Bear Grylls, I'm sure, doesn't pay for his own trips, but uh, I'm not Bear Grylls and most people aren't. We just just like everyone else, got a normal job, save up our pennies, go on our holidays, and we just happen to have a, a shiny blog about it. Well, let's go to the next step here. I noticed we visited a little bit before the podcast. On your website, you have a grant program right now to encourage people to get out and take adventures. What What is that about? Right. Well, having just given you my my spiel saying that people don't need lots of money to go on expeditions, I do recognize that people do need a little bit of money. And for years, when I was at college, university, I benefited from getting from from the uh, institution. They would give me money towards my expeditions. Now, since then, I've moved to funding them myself, and I've tried to give as much of my time and effort as possible to help other people go on expeditions. But I do recognise that sometimes what people need is just a little bit of money to give them that helping hand. So last year, my website generated 200 pounds in advertising i just have google adverts on my website so that's about 300 dollars it makes um and i decided that i would use that money to help somebody else go on an expedition so i announced on my website that i would take applications to give that 200 pounds to somebody to go on an expedition and uh when i did that i also invited 100 members of the public to each give two pounds each so about three dollars each towards it and match my funding so that brought us up to 400 pounds or 600 dollars and then a lot of other adventurers in the community uh, all came forward and said they liked the idea and they put in some money to the point where now we've got about 1600 pounds i think it's probably about two and a half thousand dollars and it's just sitting there uh, waiting for somebody to come and take it just need, <laughs> if you're interested it's open, it's open to absolutely anybody particularly interested in people who are new to adventure. So not people who are professionals with loads of experience. We're looking at people who need a bit of a helping hand getting started. All you have to do is a very, very short Google form with about three or four single sentence questions. So just fill out that form. Uh, there's about two weeks until the deadline. 
and you could be winning some money to go on an adventure. So only two weeks left, so if someone wants to apply for some of this funding, they need to get on it. Absolutely, yep. Um, yep, two weeks left, they want to get on it, but like I said, the form is very short, so don't delay, don't be put off. You just need, all you need is an idea. You don't need the whole business plan and the risk assessment at this stage. I just want to hear what your idea is and tell me a little bit about yourself, and that's all you have to do. It'll take you two minutes, I reckon. Oh, Tim, I love it. That's a beautiful program. What a neat idea. Yeah, we're really pleased. And it's great to be in a position where, you know, it's, it's not a huge amount of money, but it's it's really nice that I'm able to be able to offer it and uh, put my money where my mouth is. Well, we need to do a show once some of these people have gone on their adventure so that we can revisit this and uh, hear what some people did because of the grant, you know, the doors that were opened and the adventures that were had. That would be really fun. Yeah, that would be great. And I'm sure they'd, they'd uh, love to tell a bit of their story too. That's really cool. You also have a discount going on right now for your books. Tell us about that. Oh, right. Yep. That's um, so the books, you buy the ebooks, if you get them through my website, they're only about uh, five pounds, which I think is probably about seven or eight dollars each. And just at the moment, most of them, if you buy one, you can get the second one for two dollars. So for less than ten dollars, you'd get two of the ebooks to tell you how to row an ocean or cycle around the world or something like that. Right on. Well, listeners out there, take advantage of this while it lasts. These are uh, these are neat books. I'm sure very inspirational and and give a, could plant a lot of neat seeds for adventure. So, Tim, tell us what do you think might be the coolest thing that you've ever done? Right. Well, the thing that comes to mind was uh, one of the trips that you mentioned earlier. It was crossing the Wahiba Desert or the Wahiba Sands in uh, Oman in the Middle East. Uh, it was fantastic for a lot of reasons. Um, I happened to be living in Oman at the time with my wife who was working there. And we we visited this desert uh, before. And um, as you can probably appreciate, in the UK, we don't have anything like that. There are, there are no deserts, deserts in England. Uh, but so this just blew our minds, these golden sand dunes rolling over and over into the distance. And we looked on Google Maps, looked on the satellite and realized that it wasn't that far to go from one side to the other. And a friend of ours who, who lived there a lot longer than us, he, he said that if you go during a full moon, you can walk at night when it's still bright, but it's not nearly as hot. So we just waited for a, a long holiday weekend, three or four days, drove our car to one side of the desert, parked it when we hit the sand took a rucksack out the back of the car with three days of food and more importantly, three days of water, which is pretty heavy, and set off walking east. We didn't have, um, the only map we had was a satellite printout from Google Earth, and we just kept walking east. We could navigate by the sun, um, and all it meant was going up and down these dunes day after day, really hot, really hard work walking uphill through sand with 10 litres of water on your back. But what was great about it, apart from the environment, which was totally alien and, and just, we thought, beautiful, was the perfect simplicity of it. We just drove to one side, started walking with a backpack until the sand ran out and our water ran out about the same time, walked out to the road, stuck our thumbs out. The very first car that came along picked us up, drove us back to the start and we drove home. And that was just a long bank holiday weekend and uh, we'd crossed the desert. Oh, that's fantastic. How fun is that? You know, I uh, yeah, it was great, really good. Yeah, what a neat time! And the, I think doing something in the moonlight, it if people haven't tried it, they need to. It's surprising. I remember we wanted to do a uh, a winter backpacking trip, but work was so busy that I couldn't take any time off, and I worked at that time until about nine o'clock at night. So we decided, well, hey, we'll just go out after work and do a night hike. There was a full moon, and we were. Um, backpacking on the snow at, oh, about 10, 11,000 feet. I couldn't believe the difference that it makes to a hike in the moonlight instead of in the sunlight. And it feels like you're on another planet. Was that what it was like on the sand? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we did it for practical reasons because it was going to be bright and it was going to be cool. But the truth is, it's, yeah, it's like another world. There's a sort of the romance to it, a sort of old-fashioned adventure, and it just makes everything seem a little bit different and seem a little bit more exciting and seem a little bit more like an adventure. <laughs> That's really fun, really, really fun. So listeners out there, you don't necessarily have to go to 
um, some exotic location to try things, sometimes do something close to home, but do it at a different time than you normally would or doing it in a different way so that you can experience it that way. Tim, thank you very, very much for your time. And uh, the last question here is, how does the adventures that you that you do benefit others? And I can see that your adventures have benefited others because you've done charity work, but you're also encouraging people to get out and try things. So what's your take on that one? Yeah, I suppose hopefully they help in a, a few different ways. I mean, the truth is that if you're going on an adventure or an expedition, then for most people, it's uh, you're doing it for yourself because it's fun and it's a learning experience and it's something you want to do. But hopefully they can help others. So sometimes, yeah, I've done quite a few trips for charities, which is always a, a good thing to do. Um, I try to write about my trips and photograph them or film them. Uh, again, it's you know it's for my own benefit. It's fun um, and it's nice to have the memories. But hopefully by sharing those stories uh, on my website and online, it helps encourage and sort of engage other people who want to go on them themselves. And I try to sort of be honest and not exaggerate and uh, tell people how much it costs and uh, how hard or easy it was so they can go and do it themselves. Um, and then by offering, uh, I write lots of sort of practical advice articles and by offering things like this grant, hopefully I can help more and more people get out there and do stuff themselves. Well, that's wonderful. And uh, for the Adventure Sports Podcast listeners out there, go to thenextchallenge.org and check out what Tim's been up to. What a, an amazing portfolio he has of fun things that he's done. And what I like about it, Tim, you've done the big expeditions, but you also show us how to do the smaller ones that are so much more accessible. So Tim, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for being on the show and sharing with us how we can get out there and have some fun. Thank you very much for having me, Kurt. It's been a pleasure. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>